Wow, are we happy that you're back because we are ready to chat all about the Houston Candyman killer. And then we're going to try to file this case away in our brain somewhere deep and dark where we don't ever have to think about it again. As always, this is Amy. And this is Z. And you're listening to Curse Words and Crayons Presents True Crime. Z, I really feel like this is a crazy case that we were born to both love and hate. Ugh, I completely agree. And I really just, I want to go ahead and jump in because this case is a doozy. It will be at least a two-parter. I really think it's going to be a three-parter. We will be releasing them on our normal Sunday-Wednesday schedule, and we will not skip a week in between. So we're on an every other schedule typically, but this time we're not going to do that to you. So you will be getting these three or four episodes together in the same seven-day period. And honestly, you are probably going to want to take a break in between because this is a lot. So without any further chit chat let's dive right into the timeline of the Candyman killer dean coral was born on december 24th christmas eve in 1939 in fort wayne indiana he was the first child to his parents mary emma robinson and arnold edwin coral his parents relationship was definitely a rocky one and they divorced when he was about seven due to just a lot of different issues dad was really overprotective or was really strict with his kids mom was really protective of her sons and that really led to a lot of unhappiness so they divorced but they really remained decent co-parents with each other they stayed in close contact and Mary Emma was often allowing the father access to the children. So it wasn't, you know, no love lost or anything just didn't work out. So around this same time, Coral had actually had an undiagnosed case of rheumatic fever. And the reason they found this was when he had been found with a heart murmur in 1950, which was a roughly like three or four years later. And that's crazy to me. Heart murmurs are something that you typically find in like, an infant so the fact that they found it and i had read somewhere that this fever could have possibly have lasted like years but you also have to remember he was born in 1939 so medical advances not so crazy at that time so the fact that it had gone undiagnosed is not super rare probably for the time needless to say having recovered from rheumatic fever as well as having a heart murmur he had some health issues he was also from what i remember he was a smaller man honestly yeah he was a small man could also have led to could also have been a kind of a result of the illnesses and the sicknesses he had as a child so about the same time that they had discovered the heart murmur coral's parents attempted to re um to reconcile and they remarried again and at that time they moved to pasadena texas but that lasted for about three years they were divorced again so that was in 1953 that they got divorced again she remained custody of the kids they were able to be great co-parents i wanted to say something about pasadena because I, I'm from Texas. We have, I've said this a hundred times. I'll say it a lot more too, because I'm from fucking Texas. Pasadena, we call Pasa get down Dina or Stankadina because it is near a um, chemical plant and it, it smells. So 
just wanted to impart that fun nugget of wisdom. This is Pasa, Get Down Dina, Texas. So needless to say, not exactly like a destination spot that people are moving. <laughs> um, um, I mean, for some people, for anybody who wants to work at that, I mean, there's a lot of industrial jobs near there. I'm not knocking Pasadena, okay? So if you're a fellow Texan and you're from Pasadena, I could still be your friend. We're just not going to be able to hang out near there. You're going to have to venture out further upwind. Gotcha. Good point. So following the second divorce, Coral's mother remarried um, a traveling clock salesman and they moved to a small town of Vider, Texas. Do you have any words of wisdom about Vider, Texas? I do. I was going to close. This was part of my closing notes, but Vider, Texas. So let me scroll down. Give me just a second. Vider, Texas is known as a sundown town or it was at that point in time. I'm not sure if you know what a sundown town is. I do because um, Texas, again, very racially charged because we're in the South. So a sundown town means that nobody of color is allowed outdoors after sundown or else. Like you can be arrested. You could be killed. Like not so much anymore. Okay. So Vider, Texas has cleaned up. It is still known as a um, place that you don't want to go as a person of color. I'm not even going to lie to you about that. Um, And this is in the 1950s. It is just an extremely unsafe place for anybody who is not a cis white male honestly if you're not white if you're not straight if you're not a man you might have had some hard times in Vider, texas in the 1950s you would have not you might have you 100 percent would have had hard times right so Vider, texas it's a no a strike against <laughs> coral it's and his no. massive story we're about to kind of get together so which just that- as he as he ages you'll see that this might have come into play with some of the issues that he has later grow where you grow Grow up and the people and the places that you surround yourself with really do shape your personality and who you are, in my personal opinion. So when they moved to Vider, Coral's mom and stepfather started a small family candy company. Don't think like Hershey's, like this is like they started it in a home. So it was very small. She made praline candies. Initially, they operated it out of a garage, then they moved it into their home. And Coral worked day and night while still attending school. Um, Him and his younger brother were responsible for running the machines and packing the product. And his stepfather sold the candy like along his sales route because remember his dad was like a watch salesman or the stepfather was. This became a real center point for Coral and all of his shenanigans. So from 1954 to 1958, Coral attended Vider High School and he was really just an all around normal dude. He got along with his classmates, he had decent grades, he had a girlfriend while he was in high school, but he was also considered somewhat of a loner. He was not somebody who had like a ton of friends, but just kind of a very unassuming human. So when he graduated in 1958, he and his family moved to the outskirts of Houston so that the family candy business could be closer to the city where a lot of the product was already being sold. So it made sense for them business-wise, and it sounds like a good idea to get out of this town. So (laughs) win-win. They opened up a new shop, and they called him the Pecan Prince. That's so cute. And you say pecan? It's pecan. pecan. It's pecan, rude. it's definitely pecan. Whatever. Go to our Instagram DMs right now or send us an email (laughs) and tell us. (laughs) We'll put up a poll when we do this episode, but 
I think that it's pecan or pecan, whatever. I'll still be your friend. Okay. Well, potato, potato around here. <laughs> so the name of the shop was the Pecan Prince. <laughs> it sounds fancier, I guess, when you say it that It way. does. So in 1960, at the request of his mother, Cora moved to Indiana to live with his widowed grandmother and started dating a local girl who actually proposed to him, and he said no. So here's red flag number 700, but he, you know, this is not the first. We're going to talk, I think, a little bit later about relationships that he was in, and women who recall kind of being in a relationship with him it's not exactly just like a normal like hey i have this boyfriend and we live this normal kind of relationship life nothing strange but i really think this is his first kind of yellow flag not necessarily a red flag because maybe he just wasn't as into it maybe he always knew that he was going to houston and before this he kind of other than him being a loner he seemed like a hard-working kid. He was going to high school full-time. He was making decent grades, and he was working probably in, like, sweatshop-type conditions for his parents. I know if it was my kid, I'd be like, work until you die. Just kidding. Right. You know, no, I wouldn't do that. There wouldn't be whips or anything. But I am just saying, like, I wouldn't necessarily, I might not be as easy on my child as I would somebody else right sure. so he is working literally day and night so yeah he says no to this girl I only call that a yellow flag though for me personally okay. that's like a that's weird okay that's odd but it's not like a what what's wrong with him right and I don't honestly I don't know anything about this girl I maybe she was just kind of vanilla bland and he's like that's not how I want to spend my life I want to spend my life murdering and raping people so exactly. like this is not the path I want to take he spends some time there looks like maybe about a year-ish um until he kind of moves back so Coral's mom ends up divorcing Jake West who was his stepfather in 1963 and opened up a new candy business which she called the Coral Candy Company. This family is like super into candy. <laughs> I don't know, is that like a big thing in Texas, like candy shops? I don't, I was not born in the 1950s and I honestly should have looked more into it because now that you ask, I'm like, that would have been a great bit of research tidbit to just add in there. I'm not sure. I just, I'm I feel not, like there's I'm not a sure. lot of candy stores that are happening. Yeah, so I don't know much about the candy monopoly that was going through Houston at the time. But it seems like this is where you can still have a small shop and have it be big. It's right. not, there's not ye old Walmart on every single corner driving mm -hmm. out small businesses. This is a time where people are working for themselves. Lots of people are, this is the American dream, God damn it, right? Right, right. Well, and I mean, honestly, at that time, what better of a small family business could you have? It seems it's, relatively simple, like the work of, you know, it's like exactly. a bakery, but it's very specialized. So, and I her mean, ex husband, you know. well, he's going to be her ex husband, sorry, but Jake West, when he had Miss Coral's candies, he like gassed her all the way up. He's like, woman, this is the best pecan praline I have ever had. You should be selling these. And she's like, what? He was like, yeah, I'll help. And that, so that's how it seemed easy. At first, you're doing it out of your garage. If you're making a lot of money, why? I would.
would love to work in a candy factory. I think it would be fun. For a very short period of time, I made lactation cookies and that kind of thing. And I sold them on Etsy, like right after I had Milo. And we had a really decent little gig going. I mean, it was never anything huge. And then eventually I just got too busy and I ended up just shutting down my shop. But it's fun. It's a fun thing to do. And if you're good at it and you have a service to offer, I feel like anymore, there's tons of people who kind of do this kind of thing on a smaller scale. I feel like she went from one candy to another to another. That's like, man, this must be like a really popular. At this point, that's all she knows. She only knows how to be a a homemaker and how to set up a garage candy business where her sons work for her. Those are her two things. She divorces Jake West in 1963. They open a new candy business and they call this one the Coral Candy Company. And her sons are the ones who help to run this operation. So she designates Coral as the appointed vice president. His younger brother, Stanley, is the secretary treasurer. And his former stepfather actually retained ownership of the Pecan Prince. So that is why I'm assuming the Coral Candy Company was born because he kept the rights to the other candy company. They were big rivals, like huge rivals. So the Pecan, the Pecan Prince, whatever. And the Coral Candy Company, they were feuding. The whole time they're like, oh, you sold one praline? I'm going to sell two pralines. What up? (laughs) Candy fighting candy. It's like a Willy Wonka feud up in here. So that same year, a teenage male employee of the Coral Candy Company complained to Mary that her son had made sexual advances towards him. And so instead of addressing the situation, she fired the teenage boy. I mean, same. This is the 1950s. I do it. I honestly, you you trash talking my son, you get out of here. And remember, he grew up in Vider, Texas, and it not only was a sundown town, so it wasn't okay to be a person of color, where he grew up, where he spent most of his life. And and this is Texas in the South, too, as a whole. It's not okay to be a homosexual. It is not okay to to enjoy the company sexually of people that are the same gender as you are um, or identify as the same gender as you are. That is that is extremely unacceptable. Something's wrong with you. Um, actually, can we beat this out of you? Because I feel like, you know, just the screws loose. And if I beat you hard enough, it'll it'll knock you straight um, in this. And again, these are not my beliefs, okay? So I'm saying them deadpan. These are not my beliefs, obviously. Well, I hope anybody listening and all of my friends um, and my loved ones would know that this is not how I feel. But then uh, on top of that, like, he at the time is a basically a grown man. Mm -hmm. And this is a teenage employee. So not only is it a male employee, but it is also a young employee. So these are tendencies that are unacceptable um, for for Coral himself, probably, but especially for Coral's mom. If he was born in the early 40s, what? She was probably born in the in the 20s, maybe earlier than that. Not a time to be gay. I mean, anytime's a time to be gay. Not a time that people are out and proud and able to live the lives that they want to be living. Overall, being a homosexual was a big, big no. Coral was drafted then into the army on August 10th, 1964. 
he was assigned to Fort Polk, Louisiana for basic training. He was later assigned to Fort Benning, Georgia to train as a radio repairman before his permanent assignment in Fort Hood. However, he like really hated military service. He was not a fan. He applied for a hardship discharge saying that he needed to go back home to help with his family business, which honestly probably was pretty true. He was the, what, president of the company while they could have possibly stayed afloat while he was gone. He did have work to do back home. And I mean, he didn't like it. So they did grant him an honorable discharge in June 11th of 1965. So that's like what? It's 10 months Hmm. of service. When Dean Coral came home, he told some of his close friends that this was when he truly discovered that he was sexually attracted to men. And this could have also been why it was such a bad time for him being in the military, because this is another place where dudes are only dudes. Grow up or die. Like, not that's harsh, right. but like, for real, get out of here. Um, they just... Can we even, is it even technically legal for, for our military today? Or is it still, don't say anything? They overturned overturned that, I think. A while ago, but still here recently. I mean, our last presidency, it was, I mean, it's within, within our lifetime and even our children's lifetime. So, I mean, it's not. I guess they were worried that one. contested. Exactly. I guess they were worried that one gay in the barrel will turn them all gay. I don't know. That's not how it works, okay? Like, that's not, that's how, not I, how it works. That's how it works. You is look it? at somebody, well, yes, you look at somebody who is gay, and then you become gay. And you're attracted to every human of that sex. You don't get a type anymore. You now, like, anybody who walks up to you, you're going to sexually molest them, because now not only are you gay, but you're a sexual deviant, right? including children. And who knows? You're going to want to marry a toaster now. Oh, yeah. That's going to happen. Yeah. So, I mean, good for you for getting out, buddy, because you are about to just take the military by storm. So, but to be honest, I he's zero bad for this person. (laughs) If he had been any other human, I might be like, okay, I feel bad and you should be out of here in this, but use it. Up until this point, You could possibly feel some things, but then you remember that he has already been, he's already, there's already rumors going around that he is um, making sexual advances towards teenage male employees. So, like, he's already, I do feel the time that he was born in and the fact that he was not able to be who he wanted to be did not help his circumstances but that's not why he became the Candyman killer he became the Candyman killer because he fucking sucks and he's an awful human that's why but he comes home so now he's out of the army and he resumes his position as vice president of the Coral Candy Company and that same year they relocate to 22nd Street directly across from an elementary school and Coral is known to give free candy to the local children, in particular teenage boys, which people didn't find to be weird at all. They were like, that's so sweet. How nice is that? Y- y'all all are hanging down at that Coral Candy Company. That Dean Coral, he just loves giving out free samples to the kids. He just loves it being a nice place. 
for people to hang out. That's what a cool hangout for the youth. Well, and a lot of what I read too, what, I mean, even after he was, they found out that all of this was starting to unfold, people were still like, no, he's a good mm-hmm. man. Like he, he would never do that. And it's like, I feel like at the time, I mean, we're into the 60s now, but even still, if you had some grown ass man handing out candy on a street corner today, people would be like, get the fuck out of here. Like, that's not going to happen. But, you know, at this time, it is like he just seems like a nice man, somebody who's trying to be nice to kids. Exactly. It it just seems sweet. As a result of this behavior, he started being called the candy man and the Pied Piper. And maybe because he was giving out all these free samples, the company did get a little bit larger. So at this point, they have employed a small workforce. And he was known and seen to behave flirtatiously towards a lot of the teenage male employees. He was, again, a grown-ass man at this time. And these are basically children or literal children. Which brings us to his... um, first special friend. So this is where David Owens Brooks comes into play into our story. So he is a huge part of the Candyman murders. In 1967, Coral befriended 12-year-old Brooks. Brooks initially became one of the many kids that kind of hung out with him, socializing, um, congregating at the rear of the candy factory. I read somewhere that he also put like either like a pool table or some sort of like foosball table Mm -hmm. in the candy store so people could come, like, so teenagers could come and hang out and do different things. So um, he joined Coral on regular trips. He took to South Texas beaches and usually was with a bunch of other young boys. Later, he commented that Coral was the first male adult who didn't mock his appearance. Now, David Owens Brooks was a small kid. He was kind Constantly made fun of for being small. He was also constantly just kind of being picked on because he was a tiny kid. But Coral didn't make fun of him, which kind of caused Brooks to create a relationship with Coral. So little does Brooks know that at this point, Coral is definitely grooming him. And beginning in 1969, so that's about like two years later, Coral started paying Brooks in cash or with gifts to allow him to perform fellatio on the youth. So David was 14 at this time and Coral was 30. So not only are we dealing with a huge age gap, but obviously over the past two years, Coral is kind of grooming this kid to trust him, to think like, look how cool this relationship is, this is so special, and then starts to sexually assault him. He ends up moving in with Coral after he dropped out of high school when he was only 15. The Coral Candy Company ends up closing permanently in June of 1968. So sadly, the candy man no longer has free candy or a factory to house his various teenage male friends in. As Amy stated, in addition to the factory in the back, there was a pool table and couches. This was either in a shed or an, a, a whole addition to the factory. I forget which one, honestly. Mm-hmm. But now that's all gone. And he takes a job as an electrician, which he ended up, Coral ended up being an electrician until the day that he died. Because, yes, this ass face is actually dead. So that is a happy end to our story. 
before we even really started with the story. Uh, and we're going to keep going. But just I just wanted you all to know that this dude is dead. So you can celebrate in that fact as we continue to go on throughout this. It brings a little comfort to my heart for sure. His first known victim was an 18-year-old college freshman named Jeffrey Conan on September 25th, 1970. Jeffrey vanished while hitchhiking with another student from the University of Texas to his home in Houston. He was dropped off alone at the corner of Westheimer Road in South Voss near the uptown area of Houston. Coral likely offered him a ride, which you know, he obviously accepted. So that's his first victim. Around the same time, Brooks actually interrupts Coral in the act of sexually assaulting two teenage boys who Coral had strapped to a four-poster bed. Coral promised Brooks a car in return for him being quiet. So he was like, hey, if you're quiet, I will buy you a car. So Brooks accepts this. And Coral later brought, bought him a green Chevy, a Corvette, actually. Coral later told Brooks that he had killed the two youths and offered him $200, which equals over $1,300 in 2020. But yeah, so he offers him $200 for any boy that he could lure to Coral's apartment. So at this time, Brooks agrees, and he is now part of this whole Candyman fiasco. So he is a willing accomplice, and going forward, he starts he starts luring kids, which he's what, like 14? 15, 14, 15. He's a middle schooler, highest freshman in high school. And he, of course, is able to get these other boys to trust him because he's just one of the dudes. Come hang out with me. Yeah, my friend's a little older, but it's fine because he can get his beer. He can get his weed. It'll be cool. It's not a big deal. On December 13, 1970, Brooks lured two 14-year-old kids named James Glass and Danny Yates away from a religious rally held in Houston Heights. They were literally at a church function when Brooks lured them away. Glass was actually an acquaintance of Brooks and had been to Coral's before. They ended up being tied to opposite sides of Coral's torture board, raped, strangled, and buried in a boat shed that he had rented on November 17th. These two murders, well, three murders technically, are super close to each other in serial killer terms. Not even two full months apart, plus the other two boys that Brooks had caught Coral with, what happened to them? And from here on out, the last remaining years of Coral's life will basically just be an account of his murder victims because there are so many in such a short period of time. This case is huge. It was honestly really intimidating to go down all the twists and turns in order to do these episodes justice for us, but it is a case that we really wanted to talk about. So, Amy, how are you feeling right now? I feel like now is a good spot to break before it gets super, super gory, and we have talked about the beginning stages of this timeline. So, again, how are you feeling? So I'm feeling yucky, but all in all, I do think there are a few things that kind of stick out in my head. The one thing is in my research or kind of looking into this case, one of the things that it is reported, and we may talk about this later down the road, but one of the things that's reported is that Coral 
had actually told Brooks that he was a part of some sort of like a child like sex ring. I and thought that was Henley that he told. I've read it different in other places where it was like this was how he was getting these boys he had groomed to kind of work with him on like, yeah. hey, listen, I'm going to give you money if you bring me these boys. And to think about number one, somebody kind of creating this elaborate scheme for other people to help him. You know, you think about a serial killer and, you know, you've got like the Manson family, which is kind of like a group type of a thing. But most of the time it's like one person, one person that is, you know, out and doing all of these murders. And like this guy is hiring kids to collect a body count, which seems so much more devious to me than like even just like I'm going to go out and murder people which is still bad don't do that either but you know to be paying boys it's just like it doesn't I mean a lot of these cases don't sit well with me sometimes I sit and I'm like why do we like talking about this so much this is so depressing <laughs> there's so many things but I do feel like you had said earlier you know we really want to do these cases justice and I think it's important to talk about things like this because that's how we make sure that they don't happen again, you know, like people who were survived, who survived or people who could be put in a situation like this can think back on like, oh, this is what I shouldn't do. You know, I shouldn't get in this van. I shouldn't do these things. So I feel like what is also so sickening to me when it comes to Dean Coral in general is like he was a really unassuming person. Mm-hmm. Like he could have just really been like was. any normal Dude, you walk past on the street. I mean, the candy thing in in today's kind of mindset, like, no, I'm not going to accept candy from some weird stranger. But if I was a teenager and somebody came up to me and was like, hey, here's some candy. Yes, my parents told me not to talk to strangers, but you don't always listen to your parents. Like, and if he seems like the town cool dude, why wouldn't you? Yes, that's what I was going to say. So he wasn't a stranger. He was the candy man, Amy. He was where all the kids would go did you not okay so this is aging us did you not have a skating rink that everybody went to and it was the cool hangout 100 percent. okay same shit rocky's roller skating rink friday nights champions we're hanging out champions. yeah champions but that was also, ours and if i think about that there were definitely like old dudes that would be yeah. there creep, creep. that my friends and i knew also what about I don't know if you had like early dismissal or late release or did I say that wrong? Whatever. I don't know if you had those things in high school or lunch dismissal, but what about the businesses like right across from your high school? So he was right across from an elementary school, Amy. This So they're like, oh, that's so like right near us. There's nothing across from it. But like, I don't, that would be like if there was a gas station across the street from the elementary school and one of the workers gave Aurora a lollipop every time we went in there. That I would be like, that is a nice man. I wouldn't think, I mean, I, I, I also don't know if I would let Aurora go by herself to hang out with said nice man that gets her candy. But if I'm a 1950s mom, I don't know where my kid is. It's not, it's not dinner time. They're probably alive somewhere. I don't know. Yeah. My dad was, my, both of my parents were born in 1960 and my dad and his mom would kick them out in the morning and say, don't come back until dinner time. He had, there were six of them. And they would go. And then he says, we were not allowed, you know, and not that she wouldn't let them back in, but like, you're not allowed to come home until it's dinner time. Goodbye. Uh-huh. 
during the summers, I would ride my bike to the neighborhood. And this was in the 90s. I would ride my bike to the neighborhood swimming pool. Mm-hmm. And I would stay there from like 10 in the morning until they closed at like 7 or 8. And I, maybe my parents drove by to check if my bike was there. But I don't remember them ever coming to check on me. So this is just, I can see how it wasn't weird to these kids. They're like, no, that's Dean Coral. Dean Coral gives out candy to everybody. Their pecan pralines are pretty bomb. You should see if Dean will give you one. He gave me one yesterday. He actually even has a pool table and like these really comfortable couches I heard that Davey was going to go smoke weed behind there too. Ooh, you know, let's, let's go hang. That seems like a good place to go. You know, kind of breaking it down like that, it does seem like, okay, I could see how this could get swept up. I guess for me where the line comes is also his. So all the boys that were kind of discussed that survived this came from like, you know, we talk about like the Dee Dee Blanchard case and then um, what was his name? Nick? Nicholas. Yeah. And like he had a bad home life. Like he was not, there was not a lot of love happening in that house. These boys came from like just very typical, traditional, whatever that means, homes. But like parents that, that cared about them and wanted to know where they were. So that's where I think like it gets hazy to me is like when Dean Coral comes to you and says there's a big difference than like here's a piece of candy and I'm going to give you $200 I want you to lure that teenage boy into my van as we go through this I'm going to say it again more than likely I don't understand how Brooks never felt like he got enough money and just took off and never looked back that's the confusing part to me I can understand that we are all financially put in different situations where we may do something where we're not necessarily proud of in order to put food in our mouths, clothes on our back, a roof over our head. That right. is a thing that happens. But for him never to be like, oh, no, nah, I'm good. Like, he literally, he was luring his friends there. Okay, also did the rheumatic fever fry his brain. Is that, I all okay, I know bad people are just born, but I'm really trying to take it down to something here. Did, did he just, oh, did it cause his brain to swell? He malfunctioned. Now he's a, a rapist murderer. Like, I don't. I mean, I don't think it, it helped anything. So. But no, this isn't like a head injury where we could be like, bam, head injury. That's no, it. Could have been the cause of the heart murmur, though. But yeah. nothing. Yeah. Nothing in there in my very quick Google search. Does it come up with anything that's like mental incapacity it's like heart murmurs joint issues fever fatigue but a fever fevers can make your brain swell and if you have a fever for a really long time your brain swelling's not good well and i mean if you think about i think there's there could have been a number of things so it sounds like he had the rheumatic fever and then it wasn't until a couple couple years later that they even realized that he had it so the recovery probably took a lot longer which could have caused some incapacities with his like body functions your body is so connected to each other and like when you're really sick that could definitely cause something something else that i just thought of he said he had a really bad 
time in the military and there's not a lot of information about his time in the military like was he like beat up on was he hit in the head what happened during his training like could there be at that point he's an adult so like the chances of him being knocked into like being a raper is small but so i mean it could it definitely could have caused some things it's also rheumatic fever could also be a result of untreated scarlet fever which could have caused a brain issue i'm just thinking maybe this had something to do with not necessarily his impulse control but his like basic impulse control where where he gets sexually fueled in a situation he's like you know not only is this making my penis do some weird things but this also makes me want to murder people in the candy store and i don't remember seeing anything discussed in here in these notes but in the candy store he had um there was a room that he had so this was a really interesting thing that we didn't talk about yet there was a room called the pouting room and it's where he would go when he was like upset oh yeah i read that too but it is not in the notes so i'm so glad you're bringing it up yeah he would like throw a hissy fit like a little child and it's where he would control his anger and so i wonder though if that room was connected at all with the fact that he would like kind of get geared up like with these teenage kids and he had to like go and try to suppress himself like in a room you know who else needs a pouting room myself for when i need to calm the fuck down and need people to stay away from me I also could use, I think every parent I was just gonna could say use that. a pouting room for Everyone. either themselves. No, just myself, because my child would freak out if I locked her in a room. But me, you could lock me in a quiet room for a little bit. Give me a I, drink, like a coffee, a water, right. a wine. Not like, you know how they, this is so, this is not funny. Because mental health is a serious thing. It there have been times where I told my husband... Can I be put on a 72-hour hold, like, in a hotel? Like, oh, just for, yes. I, I don't want to, like, hurt myself or other people, but I'm just kind of sick of all of this. So can you just, can I do a 72-hour hold in, like, at the Hilton? Just for 72 hours, and then I'll come home. Like, and, and then I won't need a 72-hour hold. Like, these are all the things that I exactly. think. So the pouting room was and. It could very well, there was, I mean, obviously he wasn't around to ask like, what did you use that room for? But people knew the room existed. So anger, I heard he had a really nasty temper. And also at this time, like he's starting his like, his timeline is starting of the people that he's starting to hurt and kill. So we never get to hear from Coral because he right. dies right before right. he goes on trial like that's what I told y'all earlier he actually we're gonna we're gonna talk about when he died on this actual podcast like our third installment probably but he never was able to tell us exactly how many victims there were and a lot of people say that there were more than what Henley which was one of his teenage accomplices that we'll get to in our next episode and Brooks there that there were more victims than they could have ever confessed to or talked about because they simply didn't know is this where Coral is giving into some of those sexual fantasies is this also why it's a pouting room does he sometimes take boys in there did he kill boys in that powder room pouting I keep calling it a powder room, like he's going in there to like freshen up his makeup or something, make sure his, 
exactly. Um, no, but that when you brought that up, I'd never thought about it this way, but because Brooks and Henley couldn't possibly know all the kids that kids, adults, women, even that he could have been murdering at that time. I just wonder, is that where some, uh, is that where a lot of it got started? And it could have, and I feel like there's so many unanswered things about these, about each of these cases, because number one, he's dead. And number two, all of these boys are dead. So Mm -hmm. there's no going back and saying, and it seems like even with his accomplices with Brooks and with Henley and all the other people, they don't know. I mean, there's pieces that they aren't even aware of because they're told something totally different. So there could be so many other things to kind of talk about with that. I feel like this is a really great stopping point for this episode. Next time we are going to dive more into the timeline. We're going to talk a little bit more about this massive, huge, huge case. So as always, come find us on our Patreon. Join us on Curse Words and Crayons on Instagram. Our email is cursewordsandcrayons at gmail.com. Please send us some case suggestions or different things that you want to see us talk about. And have a happy haunted week. We will be back to chat with you again in just a couple of days to give you part two of this possibly three-parter. We're going to say two of three. We'll talk to you next time. Goodbye. Bye.